I am Ergon the Magnificent, short in stature, tall in power, narrow of purpose and wide of vision. That is very impressive. I should hope so. I'm Titch. That's not impressive, but adequate, adequate. Everybody and welcome back once again to the Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and it has given me to know <laughs> that a podcast will appear every two weeks, always in a different place, unless that place is uh, Medfield College, in which case it might show up there more than once, but always in a different place. And this week we are not at Medfield College. No, although this feels like something that could have been invented there. <laughs> I've got a weird headcanon forming, so I might mention this at the end, but okay, now, now I've got ideas. No, we're not talking about a Medfield College movie. We're talking about a movie, however. I've made Ian watch another movie, and if, uh, if you've seen it, you might have recognized my clue. We are talking about Krull. Krull. Okay, this... I'd, I'd heard of this film before. I'd actually heard it referenced on other podcasts as this this artifact, this thing to be seen, this this strange trip of a movie. And sitting through it now is its whole other experience. <laughs> I am full of full of odd responses. It's definitely kind of the the word cult movie is thrown around a lot, but it's definitely one of those movies that took on a new life. Sometime after its release, it's not terribly successful release and just built in. I don't know if popularity is the right word, but people's fondness for it or interest in it grew over the decades. Yeah, I have heard this movie spoken in the same sentence as that one movie with Sean Connery, where he's like doing Wizard of Oz in the desert. Zardos? I've heard this spoken in the same sentence as Zardos in that sort of vein, and it is odd. I never would have connected those, but I suppose in a way, yeah. It's, it's... Oh, now I want to watch Zardos again. <laughs> oh no, what have I but done? But first, first we have to deal with Krull. First we have to deal with Krull. So, um, yeah, it came out in 1983. It was very difficult to make. It was very costly to make. It did not earn a lot of money back then. It was considered a commercial failure. This It felt like the movie where there's some visual effects people who are happy to have it on their resume because it showed off things that were not, not groundbreaking, but very well done in some of its costume and design work at the time. But it, not a lot of the movie itself strung together greatly the design work i'm definitely going to want to talk a lot about because it's very distinctive in that way yeah. when it comes to optical effects i think they would have been very very impressive 10 or even five years earlier i don't know that they were that impressive in 1983 let alone 2020 yeah but uh but they did spend a lot of money on them and let's back up a second i don't Often for movies, we tend to talk about the movie by going through the plot. I don't know that we need to do this for this movie. I don't feel you can. Right, and there are reasons for that as well. But it was early 80s. Sci-fi and fantasy were very popular, so you know, Paramount uh, decided it needed to make a big fantasy movie, and this was going to be it. 
And But it is also a sci-fi movie in some ways. In some ways, which I really like. But the basic premise of it is this giant fortress from space shows up on the planet Krull. And the beast who commands this fortress and his giant army of slayers. Not Buffy the Vampire. This is like... No, but that would be cool. This would be very cool. Mountain landed and opened up and a bunch of teenagers with wooden stakes came out to kill vampires. (laughs) That would be very awesome. This is is much more... uh, Hey, have you seen Star Wars? Right, yeah. Yeah. Let's let's stormtroopers, but they can't be stormtroopers. So they're kind of stormtroopers and sort of Daleks and... Yeah, they've got like an egg for a head that cracks open and launches a worm out of them. I'm going to have to completely date myself here. They reminded me so heavily of Bionicle and the Rakshi, which actually (laughs) had like a flinging effect to throw a little worm creature. I was like, oh, goodness, I'm having I'm having like Lego flashbacks here. So the Beast and his slayers, they're not here for for trade and commerce as you can imagine they're here to enslave the planet as they have many planets before so the planet is being taken over and people are being killed right and left so the two kingdoms and i almost get the impression these are the only two kingdoms on the planet because they talk about ruling the world we don't actually see in some ways fortunately because they're graphic with everything they do show in this movie in some ways not we don't ever see like these other kingdoms getting as decimated as they describe, if right. there are any. Yeah. So either these are the only two kingdoms and there's a bunch of destruction not on screen, or these are the only two kingdoms left. And that's what I couldn't tell. So we've got these two kingdoms. One kingdom, the king has a son. The other kingdom, the king has a daughter. And they're going to get married to join these two kingdoms as one. So the, the, the king's son, who I think is going to be the new king, will lead the armies in battle and dis- to destroy the beast and the, uh, the slayers. And this isn't one of those things where, you know, the king with the daughter has to tell her, sorry, you have to marry this guy for the sake of military and political expediency. No, these two, this prince and this princess, they're they're very young, they're very attractive, they're very much in love, so they're all for this whole marriage thing. Yeah, they, this is one of, like, there is a moment where it is literally offered that we could just sign a treaty, and it's like, nope, we've got to get married. It's like, <laughs> yeah, this, no, is, yeah. this is the reversal of how this goes in every other story. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, we have to, I have to marry this prince. Uh, have you seen this prince? <laughs> yeah, that's yes. Never mind the treaty, Dad. I'm going to marry this guy. Um, so, of course, you know, we can't have a happy wedding. Um, everything goes smoothly. Well, Instead, th- their, their wedding ritual involves fire, like passing fire through water. Oh, it's other. so cool. It yeah. is actually really awesome. And it's the first glimpse we get the fact that royalty in this world has magical powers of some kind. Yeah. But before the final step of the ceremony can be completed, the bad guys show up, the slayers, they kidnap the, uh, the princess, take her off to the, the fortress, the, the, it was, the black fortress, did they call it? It was something uninspired. Some yeah, kind of like place. the dark fortress yeah. or something. Yeah. The dark fortress. I think that's it. 
and kill everybody else except our Prince Colwyn. Well, they shoot him and think he's dead. Right, right. So, yeah. although he does get to swashbuckle all over the place. Very, is, very swashbuckling style to this. He is a very roguish, he he draws a, a longsword and a short dagger kind of yeah. character trope. And that's the first 10 minutes of the movie I think just gave you. Definitely less than 15. This is very uneven in terms of how much story yeah. to minute. There are yeah. times when it drags. It, the landing of the ship with the credits in the opening is so <laughs> long. Well, it for some reason did use the old style of let's give you as many, all the technical credits right up front as uh, as much as we can. And that gave them time to do that. Mm-hmm. But as you can imagine, the rest of the movie is Colwyn gathers uh, he 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 heads to the dark fortress to rescue his bride, and gathers the 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 plucky team of men at arms and helpers and loyal companions on the way. I have quite the motley crew of, of companions, though. So it's it's a fairly straightforward story. You read the the fortress from outer space is kind of different and interesting, but the setting. Really is what makes this movie, what sets it apart. The setting is amazing. It is, it'll go from, you know, classic fantasy castle being then charged by like stormtroopers on horseback with laser rifles. Which is just awesome. Yeah. And then it's like, I felt like I was watching someone play Breath of the Wild because it becomes a lot of <laughs> wrangling horses in mountain valleys and climbing cliff faces. And I'm like, Oh goodness, what is this? But it's it's fun in that sense, but it did not feel cohesive, but the world is fascinating everywhere you turn. Right, you never know what you're going to see and somehow, even though you describe these elements they shouldn't go together, somehow they kind of do. The castle where uh the the uh, princess Lissa lives, it's a medieval sort of castle. Yet it is bright and clean and oh, big open spaces. And the the armor that the royal guards wear in this castle is very smooth and poured fiberglass and very yeah. sci-fi looking. So it is this cool combination of science fantasy and archaic pseudo-medieval fantasy. And the people of this world apparently have an understanding that they're on a world and there are other worlds and people can come from other worlds and our latest threat has come from another world. And yet we don't see the people of the world of Krull, which sounds like the bad guy world. It should it does. Be, that this, sounds like we're the, the bad guy at the beginning, but that's the world this story takes place on. I, I want to add Ur to the end and just get, get myself a donut. <laughs> now that would be a cool story. I might have to make a modification of the poster. <laughs> they, none of the people of Krull use high technology. They've got medieval weaponry and they've got magic. Mm -hmm. and the magic, it's not like the magic is sufficiently ubiquitous to take the place of technology, of, of electronics and higher technology, that is. A sword is technology, but anyway... Although their swords um, have, like, holes in them and lines through them. They're not these solid pieces of metal. There's something slightly futuristic about their design there. 
Right. It's like they have the ability to make this really amazing armor and these really cool swords. But that's what they choose to use this ability for is to make their medieval, their pseudo medieval civilization, the coolest pseudo medieval civilization it could possibly be. And I, I could I could respect that as a design decision. I'm just realizing this as we're talking here in the podcast, but there's something extremely Final Fantasy about it. Yes, you are right. Because there, right. there, Final Fantasy loves throwing our main characters who wield swords and whips and, you know, magical summons in the back of a pickup truck to go questing <laughs> across the world. This is that sort of aesthetic. Right. There's something very much that same way as like, oh yeah, space travel and look at look at this armor and look at our clothes, which are a little too finely crafted and intricately detailed. Yeah. And the cut is wrong for fantasy, but right for where we are. It's like LARPers who have enormous trust funds and can pay the best costumers to make their LARPing costumes. Uh, because, yeah, and they, and they, they don't even use the pickup trucks. They're riding around on horseback. They ride but, but everything that they have and every place they live suggests a technical ability to make it. Perfect. And that could be, you, you can look at that and say, well, that's just bad production design because they made it look like it was made in Hollywood in 1982 rather than making it look like it was in a uh, an archaic civilization. But they made it look like Krull. It looked like it somehow was supposed to look this way in this place. I don't, I don't know how uh, better to explain it, but yeah. it, it works better than you would expect it to. It does for me, at least. Absolutely. Meanwhile, to contrast it, this alien space technology that we're facing, this this you know dark castle and such, is the trippiest environment ever. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, what you were saying when we were watching it, you were... this looks like an album cover. Yeah, <laughs> and your your response was perfect. Oh yeah, I, you said you know, what album cover is? This reminds me of an album cover, and I said yes. That was both agreement and this is a yes album cover. The, the whole the bad guy aesthetic is very Roger Dean. Very, I mean the pieces of planet flying through space and the the weird high-tech organic lines to it. A little bit of HR Giger but simplified and colorful. It's 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 I love it. It's great. The princess winds up having an entire confrontation and getting trapped in something I descri- I referenced as the teeth gazebo, and you did not flinch, <laughs> because that's what hey, it looked like. It was the teeth gazebo. It was. What in the world was this? He's very fascinating, but it is also... I am very grateful that by the time other characters got in there, the fact that it looked horribly difficult to navigate <laughs> actually proved true, because we see her running around this place kind of... Not in a panic, but in a, I've got to find a way out of here, like cutting back to her on the regular. And she's running through just fine. And all of the bad guys' armies are marching down these corridors just fine. But once our actual heroes get in there, there's plenty of sliding off the walls and falling into holes. And like, this is impossible to move from point A to point B. And one of the ways that all comes together for me is, is it, it emphasizes the alienness of these invaders. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's a very, I'd say a very different design aesthetic 
inside the the dark fortress versus the uh, the royal palace that we saw the castle and everything else these aren't people are not from this world these are these invaders are not from krull and they are here with a singular purpose of of taking over i mean they if your leader is called the beast really not a good sign there but it was also it was kind of almost an insect hive very much the so. smooth organic curved surfaces inside the uh the dark fortress it was like it was in a you're you're suddenly needing to find someone in a giant ant colony and and skipping forward into when we actually get to see him in full the beast is very aquatic very fishman like oh you're right and there's something also very coral and underwater about the way it's designed oh i like that you're right it's it's got all those elements both that like a giant sponge of some kind or coral coral reef so the those all kind of apply it has that that overly natural feel yeah if if this was in cgi i feel like they would have turned the render up to like like cranked it just so that it removed every surface line it could more so than they had to just to get it unnaturally smooth right yeah they were going for that look lots of of um, you know sprayed surfaces to make everything smooth and curved and organic looking mm-hmm. it also kind of works because some of that same smooth clean aesthetic we see in the sci-fi elements of the way the rest of the world is depicted the armor of the soldiers and such is smooth in that same way but not quite as much which definitely means that the beast feels like it's very technologically advanced because the tech we've seen elsewhere is slightly smoothed in that same way. Yes. Yeah, or or it's similarly technological but they've ch- the beast has chosen to use it in a very different way. Mhm. And the contrast, the fact that the fortress is very blocky on the outside and very smooth and curved and organic on the inside. I like that contrast. It's very good. There's just so much design I'm loving in this movie. And you get to see excellent bits of it as you hop from plot point to plot point like bullets. It is, there's no, there's not a lot of connective tissue in the story of this movie, which makes it wonderful design slideshow. Yeah, at very least in the first half, it's very much a bullet point outline. A lot of and then, rather than uh, this happens because of that, or this happens until this other thing. I think it was the actually the guys behind South Park who have that terrific storytelling rule that every scene should follow from the last with a until or therefore, as opposed to end then. But this has a lot of end then in the first half, and that tends mm-hmm. to happen in stories where the first half of the story is gathering your group. It gets a little bit better, I think, in the second half. There's a little more continuity of why things are happening in the sequence they are happening. It does. It, once you've uh, got the group together, it starts flowing. But but still, story structure and story continuity is not the, the reason to watch this movie, and it's not its strong suit. Well, our other characters become a a bad-at-his-job wizard. <laughs> I like Ergo. He's, Ergo's fun. But we've got the bad-at-his-job wizard. We've got a an old man from the mountain who is like our wise leader guide guy the entire time. Right, yeah. He's the, the ancient wise mentor who finds the king and nurses him back to health and sets him on his quest. He nurses him back to health by, like, 
shoving a band-aid on his shoulder and saying, <laughs> get up, go get the knife. Speaking of the glaive, the giant, the, the, the knife MacGuffin of this story, which is such a weird design. You're talking about Final Fantasy. It's definitely that kind of weapon. That's, it is absolutely that kind of weapon. And it's one of these things we we there's this the first part of the quest is getting this ancient weapon that the prince here doesn't even know is real. He thought it was just a legend or a symbol. And that actually happens relatively quickly and relatively <laughs> easily compared to the rest of the movie. Yeah. But then he doesn't use it, of course, until the very end. Which really bugged me. Because they make a big deal towards the end about how this this weapon interacts with him. And I feel like they didn't give him enough setup earlier on. I wanted him to use that like once or twice in the other fights we see. He was holding back. He needs the scene on the Millennium Falcon where he's learning how to use the new weapon, right? Right. Or we need to see him get cocky with it. Oh, so that So that later when it goes bad, or it doesn't go bad, but it, it... it changes. There's yeah. something for it to change from. Mm-hmm. Because his interaction with it is... He, like, when when he finally gets to the boss, he pulls it out and uses it. And it's like, oh, I've been using it the whole time. Like, no. No, you right. haven't. Now, the wise old guy does say, you will know when to use this. Or you don't use this until you are supposed to. And you'll know when. That's kind of a... Kind of a cop-out, kind of a, you know, wait till Act 3. I'm thinking Final Fantasy again, and the number of <laughs> ethers I pick up and never use until the final boss fight, because I don't want to waste them. <laughs> and, but to get the glaive, he has to climb a mountain that's relatively close to the castle where the battle took place. And the climbing the mountain is the first time we really get the sense that they spent a lot of money... They spent a lot of time, and my understanding is the actors did a lot of very difficult shoots. They climbed a mountain to shoot this scene, and if they climbed a mountain to shoot this scene, you are going to see a lot of mountain climbing in this movie. They are not going to leave any of that on the cutting room floor. So much rock climbing. Yes, it is rock climbing. Lots of rock climbing. And there are a lot of scenes like that. If they have to have a scene where they are corralling or and wrangling a bunch of Clydesdales in a canyon— you are going to see a lot of minutes of Clydesdales being wrangled because if they spent the effort and money to do that, by gosh, you're going to see it in the movie. They're going to take you to a bunch of golf courses. You're going to see a bunch of... I'm I'm going back a movie. I apologize. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, they show you a lot of some of these events and that doesn't help the pacing. No, no. no After that- this really fast opening, we get lots of slow, long... In some ways, that means this movie is better in nowadays because it gives you a specific time where you can go get another snack and know <laughs> that you're not going to miss anything. <laughs> it's a service. But they he climbs the entirety of the mountain and like gets to a, what is, I guess, an active volcano top? Sort of. It's a, I mean, there's no smoke or anything, but there's some kind of a lava fissure or something... It's Red like, and glowing inside this cave. It's gooey when he reaches in, which is just... It and felt, it doesn't harm him at all. Well, it it shows him lighting on fire for a second. Oh, that's true. And then it never shows that again. And there's never an explanation as to why this super powerful weapon was stuck in a cave for a thousand years, relatively close to home. But covered in something that I guess they were trying to make look like rock, but it didn't look like rock. 
it looked a lot more like the small baked good that a kid hands another person later on. It was this, <laughs> this brown on the outside, tan on the inside, crumbly stuff. And I'm like, why is it covered in cookie? <laughs> but it, although, although making glaive shaped cookies could be fun. Now, at the end of my, the movie, my theory became the glaive must remain in the carcass of whatever boss it was used to kill until it has to be used to kill another boss. So he was like reaching into putrefied fire monster. I right. Guess, yeah. That was that's... whatever his ancestor had to oh. slay. That was what was left of it. But there's something extremely D&D about all of this. Because the way it's paced, the way you have to go through this set of things and build your party, there's there's moments that it felt like someone's notes from their game session because it's, you know, okay, you've got to climb the mountain. I rolled to climb the mountain. Okay. You made it up there. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to get that roll to save from fire damage. Okay. I succeeded. Okay. The fire doesn't hurt you anymore. So it shows you that for a moment and then it goes <laughs> away and then he gets the weapon and, and there's... There's so much of this story that feels segmented in that way. Each character gets a moment. Each plot point has a challenge. But once it's overcome, it's just done. And that's interesting because there are a number of movies from around the same time where I had a very similar reaction even then that this is like a D&D game. It's the way it's structured, the way the stakes are set up and the scenes flow from one to the next. It's very much like a D&D game. There's also at least one moment where I felt like I watched the DM think up something on the fly. <laughs> Random encounters or, oh, this will be cool. Um, because they have to go find a, a seer who yep. like sh starts to show them where the, the fortress will appear. And then that gets cut off because the beast's magical power is fighting him. So they must quest to another place. And in deciding who's going to, go fight the bad guys that show up in that place. They leave the seer behind. And there's just this mul multiple instances of cutting away back to the seer, just sitting there while everyone else fights. And then they show the seer getting attacked and replaced with a clone. And there was something very, why'd you leave the important NPC alone? <laughs> I'm rolling to see who dies. And now he dies. Why'd you do that to me? <laughs> Because this entire quest goes nowhere now that he's dead. Quick, think up someone else who can tell you where the thing is. <laughs> oh, I know, Spider Lady. Go see Spider Lady instead. It felt like that same sort of, we didn't think about what you said, so we derailed the campaign for a session kind of storytelling. Uh, I have to give them a little more credit than that because Spider Lady was foreshadowed at the very beginning. She was? I didn't think well, yeah, the I. I as always, spoilers when we're talking about movies. When the the wise old seer was talking to the prince about having to you know, go find his bride, and 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 where the prince was talking about how urgent this is, the wise old guy is saying, "I was young once like you. I loved once like you." Oh, that's who he was talking about. I and, hadn't picked up on yeah. that. Yeah, he was. He, that that was the backstory we get to. To hear more about when they have to go visit Spider Lady because uh, they were a, a thing back in the day. Got a good point there. That that was definitely a, an aspect because wise old mentor has to go see his ex Spider Lady and kind of apologize for breaking it off. Right, and that gets weird and creepy. That gets but really he does dark. Survive. He he does oh. survive long enough to get back with the info. 
And, but in the meantime, they had also got uh, he had also gathered another little for- troop of guys. They yes. run into a bunch of bandits. I think this is before they meet the Emerald Seer. They uh, they run into a bunch of bandits, and those bandits include early screen appearances by Liam Neeson, yes, and Robbie Coltrane, yes. So it's interesting to see them show up. And these bandits, after some kind of fun back and forth between them, them and the the prince and the few people he already has with him. They decide to follow him and, and help him out. Uh, really, it is only those th- the leader and those two actors who get a lot of like character development as bandits. Yes, the rest right. of them are much are very much extras. They're extras. They're um they're the expendable pathos characters. Mm-hmm. They um they ser- they serve a purpose, but they're not fully formed characters. Mm-hmm. We get instead that uh Liam Neeson's character has like. A wife in every ta- major town. Yeah, he travels a lot. They explain. Yeah. yeah, but I'm sorry. We've got uh, this is mostly retroactive thinking. But you've just given us a movie where Liam Neeson has seven families to protect. That is a horrifying <laughs> thought. Oh my goodness. He's gonna have this uh, particular set of skills. Absolutely. Unfortunately, his particular set of skills involve like getting. Sh- it was he. The- no, no, he didn't get shot. That was the other one. How did he die? I know. Th- oh no, he yeah, he does. They they he turn a corner does, and he gets but, shot. Yeah, he does near the end of the movie. So he's one of the one of the later Pathos characters. He's one of the later Pathos characters. They don't even leave enough people for each one of them to tell each of his families <laughs> individually. But yeah, and then Voltaire's uh, character is the com- a- he he's kind of he's the complainer who's not in on, who's not all for this until yeah. the very end at which he admits that it, he had a good time. You're right. He's following his bandit leader, but uh, but isn't really sure about following this prince who, who who's now the king. And um, uh, but he'll do it because his boss tells him to. But it's he gets a few good lines, but there's not that much to the character. It's fun to see him though. It's. He does a good job. All the actors seem to be putting a lot of effort into this movie. I think so, yeah. Even I the kid actor who is like the, the... The kid who is tagging along with the old seer. Yeah, he's kind of... then his... is just still there after the seer dies. He comes It's not along. like they're going to send him away. You know? I know. Like, sorry, you were just here because the seer said you had to come. He's the seer's butler kind of thing. Or... Yeah. I, they give him a stick that's as tall as all the other people, so you can really see him in the crowd <laughs> shots. But he really bonds with Ergo, the the wacky magician guy. Mm-hmm. That was kind of fun to see them uh, as a pair. Oh, and the Cyclops character. Yes, the Cyclops is uh, uh, in many ways my favorite character just because he is so uh, so distinct and so different. And they've got some lore behind who Cyclopses are and what they are and where they're from. Oh, yeah. That- and that's one of the times when you get people talking about you know, the Cyclopses used to live on another world, and they came to Krulls. So, like, everybody on Krulls seems to be uh, cool with the fact that we're on a planet and there's life on other planets. Yeah. And these Cyclopses, like, can know the know when they will die. They've been given, for, they've been given foresight due to a, a monkey's paw wish, the, the yeah. deal that they made with the demon long ago. Yeah, they made a deal to be able to see the future, but the only future they can see is when they're going to die. That is deep. And when they're talking later, at some point, they're talking about wishes. And, you know, what would you wish for? 
I like the Cyclops' answer. Mm-hmm. Ignorance. They are they are a a sad, solitary people. But I mean, once again, that's really cool world building and characters who are being played well within it. It's just a fragmented story of moment to moment across that world. And we wind they wind up uh getting the info they need and corralling a bunch of Clydesdales that can apparently like ride with fire. Oh, right. That's another we uh, as I said, we've got a, a horse wrangling scene. The fortress, every sunrise, disappears from where it was and reappears in a different place on the planet. And that kind of makes it difficult to to go to the fortress to save your bride. So they need to find out where is the fortress going to be. That's why they needed the seer. That's why they need the and when the seer is killed. Well, that's why they needed the um yeah the emerald seer. Why they needed the uh the widow of the web. Yeah, with her um clairvoyant ability. And they find out where it's going to be the next day, and where it's going to be is a thousand leagues away. You're going to get a thousand three three thousand miles. How are you going to get that far in a day? You need the fire mares. So they find and wrangle a bunch of fire mares, and we get to see the whole long process of them finding and wrangling fire mares. Complete with, like, calling to each other, Nope, catch that one, it's the leader. Now break that one. Okay, everyone saddle up the horses. Now we ride. It's like a very long scene of getting horses. And it was it was well shot. It was, after a while, it all kind of became interesting. It's like, oh. Oh, that's right. We're in a fantasy movie. We're not watching a documentary about wrangling horses. Uh, but it was almost there was almost some payoff because the fire mares were cool. You get to see them racing across the landscape, and when they get up to speed, they literally leave a trail of fire behind them. Hence it, the name. I'm just having Pokemon things like, oh, look, we've caught so many Rapidash. <laughs> but it's like I'm also looking at this, and they're showing like these wide grassy fields and these things running with fire coming off of them, and just like, oh my goodness. That is a problem. And it's worth stressing the fact that in between each one of these vignettes we get, where they're finding another source of information, where they're finding transport, where they're dealing with an attack from the bad guys, we keep cutting back to the Dark Fortress, where the princess is being confronted by the beast and offered power and majesty and the ability to rule the galaxy with him. Just marry me instead uh, of right, yeah, the, the, instead of the king. And she's insisting that no power is fleeting, love is eternal. And he's saying, "Wait a minute, love is fleeting, power is eternal." They're kind of at an impasse here philosophically. Uh, the beast even like sends a a corrupted girl from one of the villages to try to tempt the the prince at one point, and instead, on his own like closed circuit hologram, we get to see the prince just say. No, I'm doing this to save my fiance. Get away from me. <laughs> and then the girl goes to stab him and says, But you're too hot to stab. And the princess <laughs> is just like, You see what I mean, beast? Take that. Even your possessed uh changeling assassins will uh will betray you because you're evil. <laughs> my dad's my dad was wondering why I'm marrying him. He's so hot, he breaks <laughs> mind wiping. <laughs> That's the entire thing. It's like, okay. That that scene was fun because it's rare that you get a, you get to watch a bad guy's plan so blow up in their face in that way. (laughs) That was a good moment. 
and they built a lot of of sets and I think a lot of paintings and things to portray the inside of this this dark fortress. And we see a lot of that during her confrontations with the uh, the beast. But we also see a lot of that once the good guys get into the fortress and to find her and and fight the beast and then get out again. Mm-hmm. We see lots of big open spaces with bridges and lots of weird traps and caverns and all kinds of was a lot of a lot of things and different kinds of places inside this fortress the fortress is much more brightly colored than everywhere else so as you're going through it has all these sections and everyone gets split up into their own almost color-coded moments you're right some parts of it are very colorful some parts of it are dank and stony but some mm-hmm. parts of it are weird and, and smooth and more of the roger dean painting sort of look mm-hmm. and we wind up with three distinct groups. We wind up with the kid and the sorcerer who are like bonding and fighting things off. And the sorcerer finally realizes that like he's been using his magic all wrong the entire time. He keeps trying to turn other people into things and backfiring. So instead he just turns himself into a thing and fights as that, which is pretty good. Yeah. You talk about tabletop games. The, the, the magician literally has like a stack of spell cards that he's shuffling through to find the spell he wants to cast and never quite gets it right. So he's got his spell cards. He doesn't roll very well, though. Oh, yeah. Um, We get a bunch of the bandits, the ones that didn't get sniped off. Did did the one that fell off the bridge give a Wilhelm scream? I don't know if that was... It was close. I don't know if it was a full-on Wilhelm or it was a true Wilhelm scream, but... There's not a lot of them left by the time you get deep (laughs) into the the bad guy's fortress. Right. The leader and some of his men are... uh, stuck in a room full of spikes which is honestly horrifying yeah there's a lot of like slow unpleasant deaths where we and the person suffering the death knows exactly what's happening that's not a fun kind of scene but there's a few of those yeah and the our hero finally makes it to the the teeth gazebo and finally uses the glaive which is like a five-pointed star of retractable knives. <laughs> the, the, the many-limbed switchblade. Yes. And it's like, this looks like it should be a thing you throw into the enemy and it spins brilliantly, hits them once, and they explode. Instead, it's like a drone mixed with an angle grinder. <laughs> because it floats through the air and like comes in and goes zzz, and very slowly cuts a jagged hole in the wall. We're going back and forth between, like, the prince slowly with sparks flying, cutting through a wall to, like, kid and and wizard bonding moments, followed by horrifyingly slow spike depth and back again. It's very disjointed once again. And then, yeah, back to the prince with his uh, a psychically controlled spinny knife. And he, he cuts through the thing and you know, saves the princess. And then the beast just, like knocks down the, his own gazebo and pops up ready to fight them. Well, not until uh, the prince uses the glaive to bring the rocks over the other entrance to the gazebo down. So he continues the theme of the glaive as the um, demolition and renovation tool. Yeah, it, it is used a lot at first for like HGTV home remodeling. <laughs> you know, we're going to knock down this wall. We're going to to redo the stonework, and this place will have a much more open aesthetic by the end of this. <laughs> now, I know location is important, but don't worry, it's going to change tomorrow morning. 
we put a window here, you'll get both suns coming through nicely. So Yeah, that's right. Two suns, two moons. Once again, crawl world building is interesting and weird. Absolutely. I I have this uh I don't I don't know what's in the novelization of Krull. I know one was written after the movie, but I have this idea that Krull was settled by a spacefaring civilization who decided once they were there, they either intentionally put aside their spacefaring level of technology or lost it somehow and they they kept a certain amount of their building and materials technology, but they don't know how to build their own laser guns anymore. They don't know how to build spaceships anymore, but they know that they're on a planet and they came from another planet and that, you know, uh, the, the, the basics of astrophysics. Oh, there's just so much to this. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to hop ahead in our discussion, but. But I like the fact that it isn't predictable in that sense. It's not a. It's a fantasy world, but it's medieval technology, medieval society, medieval government, and everything is the way it would have been on Earth at this same level of development. No, it's a weird mix. I like that. Oh yeah, it's got it's it's all over the place in that sense, and it's it still is internally consistent, and that means you can trust the world even when the story is dragging you from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And that's very fascinating. And he does eventually, as you can imagine, destroy the beast, as you're saying. He finally uses the glaive in combat. Yeah. Stabs the glaive in, tries to get it back, that doesn't work. Yeah. Kind of has to give up on it. He psychically controls the glaive, but it's stuck too too far into the uh, uh, into the beast. And that's what led me to think, oh, maybe it has to stick in whatever it killed last. Well, and the beast actually doesn't die due to the glaive. That's right. The beast is is very wounded, but comes back and it's like, we don't have the weapon anymore, but we do have our love. And they like finish their marriage ceremony and use the the fire of their marriage to throw fireballs at the beast until it dies, (laughs) which also means either this is something only the royal families can do or once again, it's disappointing that Liam Neeson's character died. He was married seven times. How much fire could <laughs> Liam Neeson have thrown? That's horrifying. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not sure that not. bandit weddings give you the same power as royal weddings in this world. Probably not, but it's like, um, <laughs> they're setting a strange precedent here. Yeah, so yeah, it was death by wedding. Death by wedding. Once again, this is an HGTV episode. <laughs> That's actually more TLC, but still. Uh, yep. But they kill the beast and then kind of wrap the entire movie with the same opening narration that it started with. Which is odd because I was pretty sure the opening narration was the the wise old man who first finds the prince and sets him on his quest after the battle. He's. Uh, I'm not sure he's in a position to give the closing narration, is he? I'm going to counterpoint you by getting weirdly technical. He traded his the the information from the spider lady by holding the sands of his own life in his hand, and once all the sands fell, he was dead. He got there with a tiny bit of sand left in his hand, and we saw the last of it pouring out, but they used red glitter sand. 
and I could still see some in his palm <laughs> when he was there. The you man passed out, but as long as it's stuck there, he might be strangely immortal because that stuff is difficult. I worked in a craft store. <laughs> okay, then the really disturbing thing is the final lines of that scene are the prince saying, we'll bury him here. I know. So that's yeah. horrible. I was hoping he buried him shallow and he was able to claw his way out because he's, oh, wait, I've still got some glitter. I've still got some glitter. I'm no, okay. Possible to get rid of this stuff. I can't ever wash my left <laughs> hand or I die, but I'm okay. <laughs> I like that. That that makes sense. They set a rule and I found a loophole. This is why my own DM is slightly annoyed with me. <laughs> so it's one of those, I don't know. I wouldn't say that it's more than the sum of its parts. I certainly wouldn't say that it's less than the sum of its parts. The movie's parts come together weirdly. Yeah. And not all of its parts are good. There are points where the vis- the optical effects are just like, for even for 83, these were pretty cheesy, especially for the amount of money that was spent on this. This is a very lumpy pancake batter of a film. It yeah. still bakes up fine, but right. you kind of want to mix it more, but that might ruin it somehow. <laughs> So, what do you think? Is it time for final questions? I think it is, and I've got I've got a lot to say here. All right. So, movie first question: screen or no screen? I'm gonna go say I'm gonna. S- this is where it gets tricky. There's a lot of me that says go watch it, but there's part of me that says it was so uneven. I don't think you should. And I don't feel I can say that second part though. I think I have to say watch it because. One of the films this reminded me of is Big Trouble in Little China. Wow. And I love Big Trouble in Little China. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And while Krull didn't quite do the same for me, it had something of that driving force to its narrative, something of that larger world you're only seeing a slice of to it. And so there was just enough in the back of my head saying it's similar that I don't want to say no to it. And it was fully committed to its weird setting and fully committed to its weird premise. Exactly. That's what makes a movie like Big Trouble in Little China work so well. There was never a wink, never a this is weird. It was always just, well, this is the world of Kroll. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to say go watch Kroll because if you like that sort of movie that can say like, here is my cards, they are on the table, let's go. It'll do that for you. And that is sometimes what you need. I I say screen as well. I'd mm-hmm. say go ahead and watch this. Uh, I'm glad that I went ahead and bought the digital copy we've got because I know I'm going to be watching it again before too long. And this is the first time I've watched it in a long time. This is one of those movies that was on HBO not long after it was released. And thanks to that, I saw it on TV a number of times within a relatively short window. And I wouldn't say it became a favorite movie, it, that it had a big impact on me, that it even led me to other things, but it was one of those movies, whenever it was on, wherever I noticed it was on, I'd turn it on to watch a scene and I'd wind up watching the whole thing, just because it really was engaging that way. This was a movie I remember, for some reason, this became the movie I would watch while exercising. Maybe it was the swashbuckling adventure and stuff that it inspired me, but I would now granted granted, I would do, you know, five minutes of trying to do push ups, five minutes of trying to do sit ups and twenty minutes on a rowing machine while watching this movie. 
probably followed by about 90 minutes of eating Pop-Tarts while watching this movie. So it didn't <laughs> help a whole lot. But uh, that's one of the associations of it with me was watching it around that time when it was on HBO almost every time, almost every day for a couple of months. I would exercise and watch Crawl. Don't know why, but it's one of those weird associations. That works, though. I might have to try. <laughs> I'm on my own exercise program. I might have to try watching Crawl during that. Maybe it'll be some then. I could get used to this as a as a trend. But I would I would say yes. I, I don't know that it's going to be something you watch every day while exercising, but I would recommend that people give it a try. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those movies that I know that the Alamo Draft House has had screenings of this occasionally. I was almost putting this off until we could see it at the Alamo, but who knows when that's going to be uh, uh, available again. So I figured, let's watch it now. But um, if they ever did a screening of it, I'd probably go to the movie theater to watch it on a big screen. Because okay. I've never seen it on a big screen. Even now, having seen it now, I want to join you for that. Because seeing this is going to be fun, <laughs> I might actually go, I actually might go make a glaive after this. Oh, like awesome. Make a glaive prop, just because that'd be fun. I would love to see that. So I, this th- this is definitely definitely a movie I would watch again in that <laughs> sense. So that brings us to our next question. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Ooh. I'm going to say revive, but I'm going to say revive not as a movie, not as a TV show, but I want more of this world. I want, like, an RPG splat book of the world of Krull. <laughs> I want to go into this. When yes. I was looking up the movie before we started recording, Google asked me, did you mean Krull the movie or Krull the board game? And I went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> there was a Parker Brothers board game with an entire glaive-shaped board. Oh, that sounds there so was, cool. There was a card game made by parker brothers that is some weird hybrid between uno and blackjack okay note to self create more ebay standing searches yes in 2004 someone made a two-player rpg where you play as the prince versus the beast of this, there's still apparently a thriving group of Krull people, and I want to see someone compile this world that this movie created and give a rulebook for something, D&D, Savage Worlds. I want something I can turn around yes. and throw my friends into the world of Krull, say, there's seven glaives this time. Go find them all and then go fight this thing. I will guide you through this wonderful techno wizard madness so there is a whole community out there that apparently awesome. i they, want to look into this but I they have want, a cool name like Glaveheads or something i don't i couldn't find them i can <laughs> i can't find this group i can only find the small pieces of evidence that they had been there <laughs> it's very much another crawl like quest <laughs> but i want to see this world not fall to the wayside even if the movie itself wasn't enough to keep it around i want i want more of this this environment i i i can't disagree with anything you've said i'm fascinated by the the games that already exist that you've described i would love to see an rpg source book on this but if i had to pick my answer to revive reboot or rest in peace 
I'm going to say reboot. Really? Okay. I think there's enough in the setting and the style and the mix of elements in Crawl. I would like to see it made better than it turned out to have been made in 1983. I would like to see something with a really well-put-together script. And I gather that the script was, was a big problem in making this, that it was being changed up until the last minute. It had several different drafts that were mixed together or discarded. But I'd like to see a really competent, really focused screenwriter take this premise and this setting and give us the story with all of the beats and pace that it deserves and with today's movie-making technology. Rarely am I going to say I would rather see CGI than good practical effects or good optical effects. I think I'd rather see good CGI than the optical effects that were made and used in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the costuming and the effect makeup in this movie were all very, very good. The optical effects, not so much. So I would like to see this movie remade in a way that does its overall story and its premise and setting justice. Are you thinking new Krull movie, or are you thinking like Krull of Thrones coming to HBO kind of thing? No, I I don't think that there is enough story here to justify a even a one season of, of television. I think that a a good, solid well-paced movie is going to tell you the story beginning to end. And then if, if it goes well enough, they do a good enough job that there are more stories to tell in this world, then that's something to think about. But I'd like to see a good crawl feature film remake. This feels like something Netflix could do. Oh, I agree. We should bug Netflix about that. That'd be good. <laughs> hey, if they, if they did the, uh, the Dark Crystal, why not crawl? Well, there we are. Yeah. It's almost sunrise, so we're going to disappear and reappear in another location. <laughs> so in the meantime, I think that this is uh, that's uh, enough for this episode of the uh, Intermillennium Media Project. I think that kind of wraps us up, yeah. Uh, where can they find you online? Where can they find me online? You can find me online at MatthewFPorter.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter. And you, Ian? I can be found places as Item Crafting, be that Twitter, or as Item Crafting Live on Twitch. And you can find the podcast at www.immproject.com, and that's where you will find this episode and all of our past episodes, and a contact page and a link to our Discord, where we'd love to hear from you, a link to our shop if you like t-shirts and coffee mugs and stuff. I'll link to our Patreon if you would like bonus episodes and other information about the show. Uh, And uh, whether or not you're supporting us in any of those ways, we would always love to hear from you. What did you watch while you were exercising and eating (laughs) Pop-Tarts? And uh, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.